Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the inside story of the ever-changing brain with David Eagleman and his new book, Live Wired. Dr. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist and internationally best-selling author. He teaches brain plasticity at Stanford University and is the CEO of Neosensory, a company that builds neuroscience hardware. He's the creator and host of the Emmy-nominated television series The Brain, as well as the author of seven other books, including Some and Incognito, most of those we've talked about on previous Little Atoms. David's latest book, Live Wired, The Inside Story of the Ever-Changing Brain, is what we're going to talk about today. David, welcome back to Little Atoms. Great to be here again, Neil. So what's the idea behind Live Wired? So the idea is the way we typically look at the brain, you know, we have a fixed picture of it. We say, okay, look, this part's for vision, this part's for hearing, this part's for touch. But in fact, the whole system is a dynamic living electric fabric. The whole brain is constantly reconfiguring your entire life. And this is what we summarize as brain plasticity, which is the ability for the system to change and reconfigure itself. What's interesting is that the, the term plasticity was coined 100 years ago to describe this. And William James, the great psychologist, had coined this term because the material plastic is something that you can mold into shape and it holds that shape. It holds on to it. But then it stays in is, that shape. <laughs> it stays, which is why we find it useful. And so he proposed that as the term for what's going on with the brain. But what I propose in this book is that term might be a little outdated for us. And uh, so I'm proposing as a replacement uh, live wiring or, or live wear. So in other words, you know, here in Silicon Valley, all the talk is on hardware and software layers. But, but in fact, what's happening in the brain is something very different. It's live wear. It's, it's a system that constantly changes itself. It changes its own hardware essentially every second of your life. You've got, you know, 86 billion neurons and, you know, hundreds of trillions of connections. And these are constantly living there, plugging and unplugging and replugging and changing strengths and all changes down all the way to the genome. And of course, that sounds like a, an amazing idea, the idea that the brain is constantly changing. But of course, I mean, I guess we all know if we thought about it, that we're born with an incomplete brain, obviously, and then babies learn at an incredibly rapid rate, don't they? How incomplete, I guess the question is, is our brain when we're first born? 
Well, I can tell you this, it's way more incomplete than any other animal species. So we are essentially a trick, a gamble by mother nature that she took, which is to put out a half-baked brain into the world. And so what we find is that has been a tremendously successful gamble. We've taken over every corner of the planet. We've gotten off the planet. We've invented the internet and so on. So it's really worked for mother nature to do this. Other animals, you know, like take an alligator, drops into the world. It's pretty much ready to go. It has routines for eat, swim, mate, so on. But humans, we drop into the world. We have these incredibly long infancies and it takes us a very long time to wean, to reach adolescence, that sort of thing. But what we're doing is we're absorbing everything around us, our language, our belief systems, our cultures. And this, you know, as I said, this has been a really successful move. And let's talk about some ways in which the brain can reconfigure itself relatively quickly then. So there's an illustration towards the beginning of the book about um, a young man who has a, a an illness which basically results in him having to lose half of his brain, which seems like not something a person could survive. What happens? Yeah, so this is called a hemispherectomy. You remove half the brain. It's a surgery because he had epilepsy that you know affected one hemisphere. And um, as long as you do it in a kid under about seven years old, they're perfectly fine. They tend to have a slight limp on the other side of their body because you know that side of the brain controls the other side of the body motorically. But otherwise, he's completely fine cognitively and so on. So this is incredible because we don't we can't make our devices this way. If I tore out half the circuitry for my cell phone, it wouldn't still work. But you can do that with a human brain. And it's so flexible, especially very young brains, that they can just say, oh, I only have half the real estate available. I'm just going to rewire around this and make it, um, you know, make it so that this all works the way it's supposed to. And sometimes kids are born with half a brain. Later in the book, I mention a, a girl who was only born with, with one hemisphere. And no one even really knew that for a while until she got a brain scan a little bit later in life. And they realized, oh, she only has one hemisphere. And her visual system, which normally you know, wires up across two hemispheres, it took care of everything it needed to with the one remaining hemisphere. People may be aware that people that have certain conditions, blindness, deafness, for instance, have more acute other senses their other senses become more acute to compensate so let's talk about how that works in the brain yeah the whole key is that no land lies fallow in the brain so if something happens with your eyes and then the whole giant part of your brain that we would think of as visual cortex that gets taken over um, the visual cortex says oh i'm not getting any more information coming into these you know these data cables from the eyes and so it gets taken over by hearing by touch by vocabulary words by math problems stuff like that and so in people born blind the whole back of their brain which normally is visual cortex is not visual cortex anymore it's doing all kinds of other stuff and if you go blind at a young age you know same thing happens interestingly as you get older and older if you go blind later in life it has a harder and harder time taking over but you know especially for young brains this stuff is very malleable whatever real estate is there gets used. It would be like in London if some, uh, you know, if some restaurant went out of business, it's not just going to sit there empty. It gets taken over by something else. So let's talk about how quickly this can happen then. So you talk about some experiments that you've done in your lab where people, are, like sighted people, are blindfolded, for instance, for a period of time. Yeah, exactly. So that, that experiment actually wasn't done in my lab. That was some colleagues of mine. 
And what they found was this incredible thing. So you, you take a, a sighted person, you blindfold them tightly, you put them in the scanner, and then you are measuring their brains when you're doing things like touching their hand or putting a sound in their ear. And what you find is that after about an hour of blindfolding, you start seeing activity in the visual cortex just from touch or sound. So in other words, what this means is that the takeover, the encroachment is extremely rapid. I mean, way faster than anyone would have suspected you know, until pretty recently. And so the fact that that is so rapid led me and a student of mine to derive a whole new theory about why we dream. And it turns out this is because you know, when the planet rotates, you're cast into darkness for about, you know, about 12 hours. And in darkness, your hearing works fine, your touch works fine, all that stuff, but your vision is disadvantaged. And of course, I'm talking about evolutionary time here, not recent electricity times. So given that, what we realized is, gosh, the visual cortex actually needs a way to defend itself at nighttime when you're sleeping, when your eyes are closed. It needs a way to defend itself against takeover from hearing and touch and other things. And so it turns out that the circuitry underlying dreaming is extremely specific. It gets gener you get this activity generated in the midbrain and it goes through a very specific pathway and shoots just into the visual cortex, just in the occipital lobe, and it just blasts it with activity every 90 minutes. And of course, because that is the, you know, the visual system, we experience that as sight. Even though your eyes are closed, you think you're seeing. But the point is, this is, we call this the defensive activation theory. The point is it's defending itself against takeover. And this is the only solution. If you live on a planet that rotates, you have to make sure that you're keeping your visual system active during the night. And it turns out what we did is we compared 25 species of primates all of whom have sort of different levels of plasticity. And what we were able to demonstrate is that the more plastic the species is, the more dream sleep it has. And the less, you know, some primates like the gray mouse lemur, you know, has a very short infancy, it walks quickly and stuff. And, uh, and that has very little dream sleep. But humans, we're, you know, we take the cake in terms of the most plastic brains. And so we, we require the most defense. Every night we have to spend time making sure that the other stuff doesn't take over. So what happens if, I've, if a person's been blind from birth or a very young age? How do they dream? Yeah, so it turns out blind people do have dreams, but their, their dream content is, oh, I was, I was walking in my house and I was you know, feeling the furniture, but it was all weird and this thing wasn't supposed to be there. And, and then there was a dog that I was hearing and I was, uh, you know, feeling this weird thing. But the point is their circuitry is exactly the same. It's shooting information into the occipital lobe. It's just that their occipital lobe is no longer visual. So any activity that they experience as touch and hearing.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to David Eagleman. We're talking about his latest book, Live Wired, the inside story of the ever-changing brain. And David, we were just talking about how the brain adapts for people who are deaf or blind, for instance. And of course now, deaf or blind people can get medical electronic implants that they could could have to to somehow aid their their vision or their hearing. I want to talk about other forms of inputs that we can put into the brain, but to get us there, tell us what your um, potato head hypothesis is. <laughs> yes. The the potato head hypothesis is that all of these all of these senses that we know and love, like our eyes and our ears and our fingertips and our nose and so on, these are all plug and play devices. Just like a potato head, you just stick them in and you're good to go. And the reason that I came to that over the course of many years of studying this is when you look across the animal kingdom, you find all kinds of fascinating receptors for things like, um, you know, electroreception where you can detect electrical fields or magnetoreception where you can detect the magnetic fields or, you know, snakes can see in infrared and so on. You have all these different sensors for things, but the brain doesn't get reinvented or redesigned for each one of these animals. And what I realized was once the principles of brain operation had been discovered, then what mother nature gets to do is just tweak the peripherals and whatever data comes in, the brain just figures out what to do with it. The brain, that's, this is what the brain is extraordinarily good at. It's extracting patterns and establishing correlations with other things going on. And so it just figures it out. And that opens up this door to the possibility that we could actually create new senses by feeding in new data streams. And so some years ago, I spun a company off of my lab called Neosensory. And the idea is we've built these devices. For example, we started with a vest with vibratory motors on it. And we can turn any kind of data stream into patterns of vibration on the skin. We've now reduced that to a wristband. It's about the size of a Fitbit. It's called Buzz. And the idea is you wear Buzz and you're feeling spatiotemporal patterns of vibration on your skin, on, on your wrist, and, and you can come to understand new things. So, so let me give an example. One of our main markets where we've had a real impact is um, with people who have hearing loss. Let's say people who are totally deaf. The wristband captures sound. There's a microphone built into it. And it processes the sound and turns that into these patterns of vibration on the skin. And people who are deaf have no problem understanding, learning how to understand what's going on in the auditory world that way. So in other words, we're passing the information that would have come in through their ears, but now it's just coming in through their skin. And that goes and climbs up the spinal cord and into the brain. And the brain figures out what to do with that information. It's actually not very hard at all for them to figure out, oh, there's weird buzzing. Oh, I see a dog's mouth moving. Okay, it must be a dog barking. And then after, you know, after a few months of wearing this, they just directly hear the dog barking. It just The same way that when your ears pick something up, you don't say, okay, wait, what was that? There was a bunch of spikes. Oh, that must be David Eagleman's voice. Instead, you just hear my voice directly. And that's what the experience is like for people who are deaf. They're just getting the auditory information coming into a totally unusual channel to get to their brain. You talk about how uh, an experience that people who have had, uh, say, surgery for, say, cataract surgery, suddenly can see a wider range of colours, almost into the ultraviolet spectrum, for instance. Um, and obviously, we're, you know, we're aware of 
other creatures in the animal kingdom that can see in a completely different way than we can. And, and I find this idea incredibly fascinating, but just unimaginable to think about. And, and you, you do talk about this in the book. I was, I was pleased to come across this, when you talk about the idea of, you know, try and imagine a new colour. A new colour. And it's exactly. impossible. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, right. So, the, okay. So, you know, for the listeners, spend just a moment imagining a new, a new color. Just try to imagine it and you'll find that it's totally impossible. And the why is because our subjective experience, what's called our qualia, have real fence lines around it and you just can't go past those fence lines. And here's the interesting thing. Let's say you have color vision, find a friend who is colorblind and try to explain, you know, purple to them. There's no amount of academic description that you could possibly use to explain purple. And in the same way, if you have a friend who's born blind, try to explain vision to her. And you can do this all day long, and eventually she might even pretend to understand you. But there's no way that she can understand what it is to capture all these photons from a, a great distance and what vision feels like. And so what I realized is if we can create new senses for humans, the interesting and weird part is that we won't be able to communicate to each other about what it is like. In other words, Neil, if you wear Buzz and you feed in stock market data and develop a direct perceptual experience of the economic movements of the planet, and I wear Buzz and you know take in infrared information and I come to you know see the infrared world around me through my skin, we can try to explain to each other what the experience is like, but it won't be like hearing or smell or touch or taste. It'll be this other thing, but I won't ever be able to get exactly what you're feeling when, you know, suddenly you say, oh, it feels like oil's about to crash or something. And, you know, and I say, oh, it feels like there's, uh, you know, some hot thing over there. Yeah, we'll just, unfortunately, this is the limitations of language. Language is a very low bandwidth channel. And um, really all we're doing is trying to tag things that we already share in common. So if I say, oh, yeah, you know, that thing tasted like apple pie, and you say, oh, I know what you mean, it's because we both had the experience, but there are limits to that. Talking about colour makes me think of, um, there's an interesting story featured in the book, which is about how um, people in the 1980s perceived book pages to be slightly red. Tell us that story. Yeah, it turns out one of the things the brain is always trying to do is adapt to the information that's coming in and actually reconfigure around that so it can... So it can detect change. So as an example, if you're watching a waterfall, you know, you and the listeners have probably experienced this before where you're watching a waterfall for a while and then you look over to the side and it looks like everything's crawling up. It's a, it's a negative after effect where it's going the opposite direction. So it turns out if you look at green horizontal lines, if you stare at those for a few minutes and then you look at black and white horizontal lines, it looks like they're tinged with red. And the reason is your brain says, oh, okay, I get it. There's, for some reason in my world, there's this connection now between horizontal things and green, and it probably shouldn't be there. I need to sort of cancel this out so that I'm better at detecting other things. So it cancels that out, and then when you look at uncolored horizontal lines, they look red. So it turns out that this is an illusion that's been known since the 60s, but it turns out what happened in the 1980s was that personal computers hit, and if you remember at the time, of course, there were just green letters on the screen. It was just monocolored. And so what happened is everyone was looking at these green letters, these horizontal lines of green on the screen, 
and people would stare at the stuff all day long. And then when they looked at the pages of a book at nighttime, it seemed like everything was tinged with red. And, uh, and they couldn't figure this out. By the way, also the IBM logo at the time was made with horizontal lines. And it was just a black and white logo. But people would say that it was made with pink. And people would tell that to the, to the company. And IBM designers would say, but we didn't put any pink in there. Why, why are people telling us this? But it turns out what this, what this unmasks is the way the brain's always trying to adjust to cancel things out that shouldn't be there. So I've been talking to David Eagleman. We've been talking about his latest book, Live Wired, The Inside Story of the Ever-Changing Brain, which is out now in the UK from Canongate. David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's a pleasure to see you again, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.